Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading together about David's life from the books of First and Second Samuel, and this morning we're going to look together at what is perhaps the most uh, notorious story of his life. So I'm going to read uh, for us from 2 Samuel 11. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would speak to us uh, in the places where we find ourselves this morning. 
um, in whatever condition we find ourselves, in whatever, uh, however we feel our faith is, whether it's really strong or weak or we're not sure. Father, meet with all of us like you always do through your word and by your spirit. Teach us, show us your grace, and change us by that grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a video clip that had been captured uh, on a doorbell camera. I'm guessing that some of you have seen it, probably a bunch of you. It made the rounds. Uh, it was a sunny day, uh, probably in the southwest somewhere. And an Amazon delivery guy rolls up onto someone's porch. And once he gets on the porch, he sets down a package and he crouches down to take a picture of that package. And as he crouches down, he sits on a potted cactus. Um, so of course he jumps up like he's in uh, a Looney Tunes cartoon and for the next couple of minutes, uh, he mutters obscenities and he picks thorns out of his backside, which was mildly amusing. But the thing that really stuck out to me, the thing that I remembered um, was th at the very end. At the very end, it seems like he remembers uh, that he has been on camera, that he has been watched the whole time. And so he looks right at the camera and he gives a half-hearted thumbs up. And that popped into my mind this week as I was thinking about the last line of that story that we just read together. It's the line that says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's actually a soft translation of the original, which reads more literally, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. That is a, a sobering and important end to the story. David's been frantic to try to control this situation. He's been frantic to try to work it out so that he looks okay at the end of it. He constantly shifts his approach as the situation shifts in front of him. And it would seem, from one way of looking at things, like he pulls this whole thing off. David is powerful and he's crafty and he's resourceful. And he does pull a lot of things off, but in the end, we are reminded that he has been watched the whole time. He has been seen. He exerts control over lots of things, but there is one thing that he cannot control. He cannot control the moral reality that is built into the grain of the world by God himself. And as St. Paul says to his friends in Rome and in Corinth, these things were written down for our instruction. And so the story starts uh, with a surprise, especially for those of us who have been following David's story from the very beginning, from the start. The storyteller says that in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to war, David remained in Jerusalem. And that's a little bit unsettling because David has been known from the very beginning of his story, from the very beginning of the story that we've been reading together, he's been known as someone who acts. I mean, for decades now, for decades, his reputation has been the reputation of the one who led out Israel and brought Israel back in. But now he is hanging back. And we see that David acts throughout this whole episode through intermediaries and through messengers 
he's not actually leaving his place. Something has changed. David has taken his leisure. Two weeks ago, we talked about David at the apex of his power and at the apex of his influence, both personally and politically, and now he is the recumbent king. He is the laid-back king, waking up late in the afternoon and rising up from his couch to take a stroll. And he walks around on his roof, which affords him a view of the surrounding houses, and he sees her, a woman who the storyteller says was very beautiful, bathing. And we aren't told her name just yet, and that is indicative of this entire story. Bathsheba becomes the object of a series of verbs for which David is the subject. David saw, David sent, David inquired, David took, David lied down. The storyteller is largely silent about Bathsheba. She only says a few words in the story, and the weight of her silence is very heavy. Because the effect of it is that all of that weight in the story, the unchecked desire, the scrambling, the lies, the cover-ups, all of the weight falls on David's shoulders. And so here's what happens. The whole thing from the very beginning, from the leering at the beginning through the adultery, through the dismissive sending away, all of that happens in very short order in the story. It takes up very little space. And in some ways, that is no surprise at all. This is literally the oldest human story in the book. And by book, <laughs> I mean in scripture. And there are no twists, there are no turns, there are no creative flourishes this time. It unfolds as sin always unfolds in your life and mine. Sin is a one-trick pony, and it is an effective one-trick pony. David, you know, he looks first, and he sees this beautiful woman, just like our first mother saw some fruit that looked good for food. And that is not the problem. The problem is everything that follows after that look. I mean, listen, Church, David knows the moral vision of the Old Testament. <laughs> he knows what's going on. I mean, David is the one who writes in Psalm 19 that the law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. David is the guy. David is the guy who writes that the testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. David knows all that. He knows that God has his good in mind in the giving of the law. He knows that God has his flourishing in mind. He knows because he's taught us that God has woven goodness for our bodies and, and goodness in our relationships and the way that we treat each other. He has woven goodness into the grain of the world for our bodies and for the life of the world. David knows all this stuff. He knows that it's wise to follow the grain that God has built into the world because it leads us to our good. And he knows that it is very foolish to go against it. 
because it always leads to pain and loss and chaos when we go against it. But like our first parents in the garden, he allows himself to think that maybe he knows better. That maybe he knows what's really good for him. That maybe he knows the best way to run things. And he begins to doubt God's goodness to people like you and me. And as soon as he doubts that, he begins to play God. And so with unchecked desire, the recumbent king becomes God. And David sent. And David inquired. And David took. And David lied down. And church, that's, that's always the anatomy of sin. That's always what it looks like. David's sin, all sin. It is tired, and it is boring, and it is predictable. And you know, I know, believe me, I know, <laughs> that it's tempting to hear this story, it's tempting to read it again, it's tempting to think about it again and think to ourselves, wow, David, such an idiot, <laughs> right? Where is the guy who administered justice and equity to all his people? Where's that guy? Where's the guy who showed the kindness of God to Mephibosheth just because he had promised to do so and he was a man of his word? Where is that guy? But church, the faith that you and I profess, it falls apart if we will not be honest with all of it. It is the same David. <laughs> it is the same David. The David who administered justice and the David who showed God's kindness is also the David who took Bathsheba. There is a war within him. And I know this. And I know how it works deeply from my own experience as a human being. And I think you do too. And part of growing up in our faith is recognizing the, that anatomy of sin, recognizing how it works and what it looks like, and admitting that while the particulars may or may not be different than David's, his story is our story too. And then part of maturing in our faith is asking God, who's given us new life, who's given us the gracious gift of his spirit to help us to help us not to doubt him <laughs> and to help us to give us the sense and strength to believe in him and to believe what he says and to stay in the grain of loving him and loving our neighbors. That's what it looks like to grow up in our faith and church. He will help us when we ask him. He will. So the word uh, comes back to David from Bathsheba, I'm pregnant. 
And maybe, you know, maybe David thought that that is when the chaos started in his life. But you and I, we know better, right? The chaos started when he doubted the goodness of God. And we find out now that sin does not only have an anatomy, it also has an ecology. And when I say ecology, what I mean is that it's never contained to the place or to the time in which it happened. It always ripples outward, creating an environment of pain and loss and shame in its wake. As John Golden Gay says in his commentary on this story, it is horrible how one thing can lead to another, but one thing does lead to another. And what follows is the long and sad tale of that chaos. David sent for Uriah the Hittite, who is Bathsheba's husband, who is off fighting David's war for him. Later on, Uriah is listed as one of David's 30 most valiant and loyal men. <laughs> and he lives up to that title. He proves worthy of it, and he stands in sharp contrast to David's infidelity for the rest of his very short life. David's whole plan hinges on getting Uriah to be with Bathsheba so that her pregnancy will not be pinned on him. So first he brings Uriah in under the guise of finding out how the war is proceeding. Then he bribes him with a gift and he tells him, go home. But Uriah does not go home that night, and the next morning when David asks him why, he says, my king, my king, the ark is in a tent, and Joab, my, my commander, your lord, he's in a tent, and all of my soldiers are camping out in the open field. Why should I go home? As sure as you live, I'm not going to do this thing. And so David's plan B the next night is much more crass. We didn't read about it. David gets him drunk. He assumes surely he will go home. David sinks deeper into the chaos that he has brought into his own life. Uriah does not go home. And so the next morning, David writes a letter to his commander, Joab. And this is what it says. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And David sends Uriah back to the battlefront carrying his own death warrant in his hand. What David doesn't know or doesn't care about is that for Joab to carry out this plan without arousing suspicion, he's going to have to put a lot more soldiers than Uriah into danger. And that is what happens. And it leads to the death, to the murder of Uriah and others. And when David hears this, his response to Joab through the messenger is wildly cynical. Don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. And you can hear his relief. And after a period of mourning, he sends and takes Bathsheba a second time as his wife. And she has a son. And we come back to where we started. 
David has done a lot. David has scrambled a lot, but he cannot bend the moral reality that God has built into the grain of this good world. And he does not elude the gaze of God. He has been seen. And we'll have to wait uh, to see how that works out in David's life. But church, you got to hear me. This is not just bare history. This is not just a story that somebody told to somebody else, someplace else a long time ago. That is not what this is. It is for us. It's written down for our instruction. And so I don't want us to end reading this by simply saying, okay, I recognize the anatomy of sin and I, I recognize that it has a harmful ecology to it. I mean, for sure, that is important for people like us in places like this. This story serves, uh, as scripture always does, as a mirror to us to see our own lives reflected in it. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, this writer has cut very, very deep into the strange web of foolishness and fear and fidelity that composes the human map. But church, more than that, more than that, in addition to that, you and I have to allow this story. We have got to get to the place where we can hear this story and we can allow it, the sad story of the scheming recumbent king to make us long for something better and truer. And so we have to, we have to end reading this story by thinking of Jesus, don't we? Of whom Paul writes to his friends in Colossae, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Church, listen to me. Jesus does not move away from people who doubt him and doubt the goodness of his word. Jesus does not move away from people even who fall. In love and at great cost to himself, he moves towards us. And in his death and resurrection and ascension, he offers forgiveness to people like you and me, like you and me, who have walked out the anatomy of sin over and over and over again. And church, listen, no place, no place is too far for us to run that he cannot find us there and bring us home when we turn to him in faith and repentance. And he doesn't just reconcile us to God. He reconciles all things to God. In all the places where the ecology of our sin has broken and destroyed and stained things, he will bind up, and he will rebuild, and he will make new. He makes peace, and that is the good news, and it is absolutely true. And so let's cling to him in faith and in repentance and find the healing and the good that we have been made for. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, thank you for this story. And we thank you that you have given it to us for our good. 
And so we ask, Father, that you would help us to hear it again, to see it again, to meditate on it again, to turn it over again in our minds, and to believe what is true about us as human beings. And to run and to cling to you in faith at all times. To rely on you for help and for strength and for wisdom and for sense. Father, we thank you that you remake us that through Jesus you are reconciling everything that we have screwed up back to yourself. Help us to believe. Father, help us to cling so that through us you can love this broken world around us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.